A man finds a treasure. Can you find it now? A man is saved from death by something. And then we travel to Hawaii to spend the night in a house that is not only rumored to be haunted, the house actually eats the corpses of the people it kills. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. We got a lot of stuff to cover, so we're going to jump right into this. But first off, we got to give a special shout out to my newest Patreon. I got another one. Nady the Nat. Natty the Nat. N-A-T-I-E the Nat. Thank you, Natty. Nat, whatever. Thank you. I should say whatever. You're donating money to the show. Thank you, Nady, for supporting the podcast. Really appreciate it. Should have asked how to pronounce your name, but I didn't. It's time to record this episode. So, Nady, hats off to you. Now, since normally we throw the Patreon supporter the keys to the Carpenter Copter or whatever vehicle we're taking, but because Nady is a gnat, we're just going to ride on Nady the whole time. So, everyone climb on the back of this giant flying insect. Gnats fly, right? Jump on top of Natty. We're flying. We're flying to southwestern Oregon for our first story. The whole way. It's kind of cool because it's like the back vibrates. We're like, woo! We're like holding cups of pudding and it's like we're holding cups of milk and then the other ingredient in pudding and it's just shaking. That's how you make pudding, right? You just shake it. What's the thing you shake to make? Shake and bake? Anyways, we're flying to southwestern Oregon. We're actually taking Nady back in time to July 18th, 1856. So imagine like old timey. Not the Dixie song. That's too old timey, but imagine like old timey. And the U.S. government calls in this dude named John Evans, and they're like, "John Evans, we're with the Department of the Interior. We have a mission for you. We want you to like walk around Oregon and report back to us." Now he was he was a, not just some dude. Well, he was, but he was also a doctor and he was a geological dude. He knew, but he was made of silica. He was a rock man. So anyways, John Evans is like, I will do my duty to your country. He's walking around southwestern Oregon. He's just walking along trails, making maps and stuff like this. And eventually, he's done, right? That's how tasks normally go. You get assigned the task, and eventually you finish it. He starts off in Port Orford in Oregon, and then he ends up in the uh, Williamette River area. He's like, all done. Now, 1859 rolls around. He's sitting at home, and he goes, you know what? I got all these, like, cool things that I found on my journeys through southwestern Oregon. I should find out what these are. I mean, yes, I am made of rock, and I should recognize my rock beans. I should recognize my fellow rockmen. But I don't recognize some of the stuff, so I'm going to send it off to the Boston Society of Natural History. I got some homies there. They can take a look at this stuff and tell me what this stuff is. Because, really, he was just making maps and stuff for the government. He wasn't making maps, but he was basically just going on a survey for the government. But he was putting a little stuff in his pocket, too, man. Daddy needed a new pair of uh, drums because he kept going to the point that his drum got worn out. Sends it off to the Boston dudes. The Bostonians are looking at it and they're like, this is weird. And also, I can't do a Boston accent, so I'm not even going to try. This is wicked smart. 
who have got this mineral. They then contact John and say, hey, you sent us this stuff. Where'd you get it from? And he's like, oh, well, on my journeys up in southwestern Oregon, I came across what had to have been a 10-ton boulder just sitting on top of this mountain, right? I walked up to it, and I go, oh, this is kind of shiny. Papa needs a new pair of drumsticks. He cuts off a bit of it, puts it in his little pouch, and then I mailed it to you. And the people in Boston are like, oh, that's wicked smart that you did that to us. Uh, how about we tell you, how about I stop doing this bad accent? The Bostonian people say, listen, what this is, is this is from a super, super rare meteorite. And John Evans is like, how rare? And the Bostonians go, $300 million rare. And then John Evans' eyes, bouncing out dollar signs on him, his tongue. And the Bostonians are like, yeah, we've been doing that all day long. Where's the rest of this meteorite? This mineral is worth hundreds of millions of dollars in old-timey money. So it's going to be worth even more if anyone ever records a podcast about this in 2020. Now, he goes... I'll show you where it's at, because obviously I can't move a 10-ton boulder myself. And he assembles a team, and then he dies of pneumonia before... Because he wasn't going to tell anyone where it was at, obviously. Because he would end up going there, and there'd be some, like, bad guy with a big mustache flying away on a helicopter. They didn't have those. Flying away in a heliotrope, carrying this boulder. Going like, ha ha ha, John Evans, you will be poor forever. Flying away. So, he didn't tell anyone where it was at. He was going to lead an expedition there. He dies of pneumonia. Now, there's two ways to look at this story. One is that since 1859, people have been looking for this meteorite. They He gave a brief, like in his papers, they know where he went. So they feel like they can kind of narrow it down. But treasure hunters have been looking for this. Professional geologists, map people, um, whatever they're called, have been looking for it. Cartographers? I only know that because I play Minecraft. And then even the Smithsonian can't find it. Now, what has happened is now people go, it's a hoax. It was a hoax. There is no meteorite up there. They say it was a hoax because the dude in 1859 was poor, which I don't know. He might have been. He might have simply been poor in spirit, but had wealth and friends around him. Who knows? But they say he was poor. They also said that it matches a meteorite. It was meteorite rock, but it matches a meteorite that crashed in Chile in 1822. And he was in Panama City, which is not really close to Chile, but apparently, this is the idea. He bought the minerals at some market in Panama City. And then he comes back up to America. The U.S. government sends him on this tour. He does it, but realizes he doesn't have any money. He spent all his money on drum equipment. And then he goes, wait a second, I'm going to run this scam. I'm going to send these little shavings to Boston University. They're going to tell me I'm wicked smart. They're going to send them back. And then I'll start this whole thing where I found it and it's worth millions of dollars. Kachin Kacho. That's the theory. They believe that because of them, when they look at them now, they say these are exactly like the meteorite that fell in Chile. So it has to be a phony, right? So as of now, people stop looking for this thing, really. But I am going to throw out another theory. It's real. That's the official story. He was poor. He had these things that he bought at a flea market in Panama City that were from a Chilean meteorite. He knew the value of them. He sent them off to the Boston people, and they told him this. And he goes, oh, I know. I found this in Oregon. Give me a bunch of money. We'll assemble a team. As long as I don't die of pneumonia, I'll be rich afterwards. Here's the problem with that. One, he sent the little pieces to the Boston people with a bunch of other rocks. 
So it didn't seem like he was like, oh, here, I think these are valuable. He sent it to him years afterwards, and he didn't leave a note saying, hey, I think these are super valuable. Check these. It was just like, here's a bunch of stuff. I was wondering if you could run some tests on it. Two, that's a pretty long scam, right? Like, wouldn't it have been easier for him to just sell the directions to be like, oh, yeah, I could go on the journey with you and get a $300 million rock. Or I could sell you, you give me $10,000, and I'll give you a map there, and then he could just disappear into Panama City. He could leave the country, right? That'd be a short-term con. There's a long-term con where then you have to get, like, people to contractors and heliotropes to help fly around to pick up the rock, all sorts of stuff. So it's a pretty long con. One, he has to make sure that the people he's sending it to will recognize it as a valuable thing. He's sending it out of the state. He has to assume it never gets lost in the mail. If he really, if this is the key to his con, why is he sending it out to his homies in Boston and not to his dudes in Oregon? But here's the biggest thing. People go, it's obviously a piece of the Chilean meteorite because it is chemically or minerally the same thing. But... Has people never heard of, uh, like, uh, meteorite? Like, uh, what are those things called when there's a bunch of meteors? Of this? Meteor shower, meteor shower, right? So, if you had a planet, Krypton blows up 10 million years ago, and there's a bunch of chunks flying through space, right? And you're like, Jason, that's not what it, Every meteor shower is not Krypton blowing up. But, if you had a giant thing blow up and crumble... It's not, it doesn't just fall on one part of Earth. Like, I've seen Armageddon. Like, it trails out and destroys a bunch of stuff. So, what's to say that it's, there is not a meteorite that is from the same source that the Chilean meteorite was, that also crashed in the 1820s in the middle of Oregon. Nobody saw it. And then it's sitting there. That's why it would be exactly like the other one. So, I believe that the Port Orford meteorite, which is what it's called, it's pronounced correctly by other people, but the Port Orford meteorite is real. I believe it's real. But I don't know. It could be, it could be wrong. He could have frauded the whole thing. He Actually, I just thought about this. Some people are just really bad at committing crimes. Some people are just, like, suck at it, right? So maybe he didn't know that there's a short con and there's a long con. Maybe this is the only con he could think of. But let's go ahead and move on to our next story here. Now, our next story is from my 1988 file. Collection of short UFO and weird encounters from the year 1988. I got from the website thinkaboutitdocs.com. Longtime listeners may recognize something out of this, but even if you're new to the show, I think you'll find something interesting about the story. I'm reading this from the website. This story takes place in Beirut, Lebanon. It's May 18th, 1988. And there's this dude named Hemrod Levins, right? So he's driving down the road. Now, he's in Lebanon. It's 1988. So not a peaceful time for that country. He's, he's driving through town. Driving. And all of a sudden, bombs start falling. He starts I think he did more than a comically distraught sound. He was definitely panicked. And bombs are falling all over the city. And he's like, this is it. And he says, suddenly, everything went quiet. And Hemrod is now floating up. And he's like, I'm dead. Like a bomb fell on me, and I'm dead. And the next thing he knows, he's in this metallic container. And while he's in this container, he looks over, and there's a wheel. Spinning super fast. Also in this container with him. 
definitely alien. Like, to me, and I've talked about this before, the idea of dying, what terrifies me the most about dying is the abstractness of death. Now, I don't believe you're just annihilated. I don't believe you're necessarily walking around in cities of gold. I don't know what it is. I could become an infinite geometrical pattern that's aware of everything in the universe. I could become reincarnated as a frog, but in an alternate universe where frogs are like butterflies. I don't, I can't comprehend the next stage. So stories like this are inherently creepy to me because what if when you die, we're just some big old metal eggs and they're just wheels. And that'd be cool for the first 10 minutes, but then afterwards you're like, this is it. That's what creeps me out about death. It's the, is there gravity in the afterlife? Is there a moon? Is there any... I, it uh, trips me out. Anyways, we're not going to get into my own hang-ups about the afterlife because this story here, he's sitting in this mechanical device, like a sphere almost, and the spinning wheel begins to talk to him. Now, we don't have a lot of details of this because I'm getting this as a condensed version from this website. And I couldn't find any follow... That's the thing about this 1988 website. Sometimes I can find follow-up details and sometimes it just seems to be encounters that... Think about it, docs.com. They're not personal encounters people have written in. They're stuff they've culled from magazine articles and books. So, anyways, he's watching this wheel spin and he says, the wheel begins to speak to me in my language. Which I would be Arabic, I believe. I don't think there's a language called Lebanese. There might be. And anyways, this wheel's spinning around and begins talking to him, and he says that they, these are the subjects that he talked about were, quote, eternal life, black holes, which is kind of a cool combination, I guess. I'd be like, no, no, go back to the eternal life. It's like, a black hole is where light can't escape. Yeah, yeah, I know what a black hole is. Tell me more about eternal life. The event horizon. Ugh, okay, now I guess now we're really on the black holes. It also, the wheel also told him, that it needed ozone to survive. It needs ozone to survive. Whatever that means. I actually have a theory on that. We'll get into that in a second. But what happens is eventually the wheel stops talking. The wheel keeps spinning, but it's no longer making any noise. He's now just sitting in this mechanical compartment. This wheel's just spinning next to him. And then he's standing on his balcony, looking out over the city where the bombs had previously fallen. He's at home safe. We covered something similar to this back on episode 242. I had an episode called The Multiverse Abides, Correcting Glitches in Reality. And that's where a guy is driving down the road. He gets in a violent car accident and then time stops and he sees a giant water wheel appearing over the horizon. Eventually, it's bigger than the biggest city he's ever seen. And he falls into it and it begins flipping him around from reality to reality. It's a really good episode. I really, really like that episode. It's quite terrifying. Flips him around till eventually it puts him in a reality um, like uh, 30 seconds before the car crash. So he feels like he died but then just got shifted to another reality where he hadn't died yet. And then he like, I don't even think he went to work after that. I think he just went home. But I, I thought this story was interesting for two reasons. The wheel, again, being present in this idea of uh, coming back to life. So both of these people died. Hemrod had a bomb dropped on him. The other guy died in a car accident. Both of them were presented with the wheel. The In episode 242, the wheel was presented as this uncaring universe that just wanted to put you back into a universe where you lived in. This one, he actually had a conversation with the thing, which I find fascinating. Again, like you're talking to the universe. 
The idea where it says we need ozone to survive, to my younger listeners, you may remember this. You know all the stuff you hear about climate change today. We got 10 years to fix climate change, or eventually polar bears are going to have to move into Arizona and start selling jewelry. That was the way people used to talk about the ozone layer. The ozone layer, we got five years to fix the ozone layer. It's going to burn us all. Go back and watch some action movies from the mid-80s to the early 90s. So many of them, sci-fi movies, not Lethal Weapon, so many of them involve the ozone layer being destroyed. Even up to Book of Eli, they talk about the ozone layer being destroyed, a hole pierced in the sky. And that was kind of a throwback to those old post-apocalyptic movies, but... So many movies. I just watched a movie last night called Airtight. It was a Canadian made-for-TV movie about us. The world was do- and living in dome cities, and the corporations controlled the airflow. And it was up to the Air Force, these group of young up-and-coming cops turned renegades, to overthrow the evil capitalists and make it so everyone gets air. And that's, I mean, that's basically the plot of Tank Girl. That's a plot of so many of these movies. Back in the 80s, though, the way people think about climate change now, the people way thought about the ozone layer back then. So I find it interesting. That probably was on Himrod's mind. Oh, no, I saw this documentary the other day called Tank Girl. A bunch of kangaroos are going to show up. How are we going to protect the ozone layer? So when he's talking to this hyper-intelligent thing, ozone would be part of that conversation. I, it's interesting to think because... The idea, did he die? Did a bomb actually fall on him and he got slotted into a reality? I, I implore you guys to go back and, and I've never done this before. I don't think I've ever done this on the show. I implore you guys to go back and listen to episode 242, The Multiverse Abides. Because it's a really, really interesting episode. And I think it's a great companion piece to this one. It shows that the guy in that episode kept feeling that every time his memory got erased, every time he fell into another reality... But somehow he was able to make sense enough of it to tell us the story. This guy, this may be the only version he remembers. Is as it's sorting him, he just remembers this conversation. But another interesting thing about these stories is finding parallels. Because when we look at the world of the paranormal, we want to find things that match. Because they're already so bizarre. So if we can find person on one part of the world has this experience, and these things match, and you have person on this part of the world who has this experience, and these things match, and neither of these stories were popular at all. These are not the communion books. These are not episode of X-Files. These are two completely unrelated people on opposite sides of the planet experiencing the same events, which makes them have a little more credence. Very, very creepy story. Both of them have happy endings, but both of them, the people are faced with the reality of they might truly know what happens to you after you die. The tunnel of light may simply be a tunnel towards a wheel that is sorting you through the multiverse. Who knows? But let's hop on back of Natty's back. You know what? We're going to give Natty... Natty's going to transform into a human. We're going to give them the keys to the carpenter copter. You can fly us around now. You can rest those little wings of yours. We are leaving behind Lebanon. We are headed to Hawaii. That sounds like a creepy nursery rhyme version. Is that an authentic Hawaiian song? You're like Jason, I heard it the first time. You don't have to say it again. And no, not only is it not a tropical song, it might be vaguely racist that you go into that song. 
Let's put on our lays, though, as we fly into Hawaii. Specifically, we're going to the island of Honolulu. Turn on invisibility mode and hit that button. We're going back in time to the mid-19th century. So 1800s, right? 1850. And there we're going to meet a family in Honolulu named the Kaimuki family. Or Kaimkuki family. How you pronounce it? Probably not, but that's how it's spelled. How did I say it? Kaimkuki family. We're like, hey, Kaimkukis. And they're like, hello, weirdos. (laughs) All hopping out of a helicopter piloted by a bug. Giant gnat. There's a father. There's a wife. Two little kids. A normal family. And the patriarch of the family has this house built known as the Kamekuki house. A little Honolulu house. Everything's going fine there. But one day, for no reason, the father... They're Japanese, by the way. I don't know if I said that or if that name was self-explanatory. But anyways, one day, the father gets his katana. And his wife and his kids are sitting there. And he's like... Uh... Kills them all, and then he buries them in the backyard. Chops them up, buries them in the backyard. And eventually people go, hey, wait, hey, Kamakuki, where are your kids and your beautiful wife? And he's like, they're around. His eyes shifting from side to side. I'm like, oh, okay, are they, can I see them? And he's like, I don't know, do you have x-ray vision? His eyes shifting from side to side. <laughs> what, what is x-rays, for one? It's 1850s, too. Do you have some sort of eye problem? Why are your eyes shifting side to side? And he goes... Hmm, I can't think of a witty one-liner, so I'm just going to keep shifting my eyes side to side. Eventually, people call the cops because his family's missing, and it turns out that he did kill them, and they find the wife and one of the kids in the backyard, and they never found the body of his daughter. So that's just the start of the legend of the Kame Kuki house. Part of the legend is afterwards, 60 years, the house stood abandoned, and then a lesbian couple moved in, but one of the lesbians started sleeping with a dude. And so then that started a bunch of trouble, obviously. And the dude got tricked into not being in love with the lesbian or something like that. So he came back and murdered the lesbians and killed himself in the house. And their bodies were never found. They just all went missing in the house and everyone just assumed everyone got killed. So you have a little girl's body missing, can never find it in the backyard. You have two lesbians and this dude, they're all missing. But the implication was they were all murdered there. I guess someone, like, was walking on the street one day, saw a bunch of people getting murdered, and he goes, I'll call the cops. And then he runs, and he comes back, to people aren't there. But apparently, they die too. Summer 1942, a family moves in, a single mom and her three kids. Now, this was reported in the newspaper. It's a very important detail to note. One day, she calls up the cops, and they can't really hear what she's saying because there's a bunch of static on the phone, but they do hear her say, He's trying to kill my kids! And so the cops rush on down there, and the kids are all, like, super scratched up. They're like, oh, just, like, laying on the couch. Oh, dude, I'm super scratched up. This sucks. I'm more scratched than man at this point. Just one big red line just standing there. Cops are like, oh, this sucks. And then, so there's three kids. Two of them are laying on the couch, all like, ugh. And then one of them is (laughs) is flying around the room. Reported in the newspaper, by the way kid flying around the room and then starts getting thrown from wall to wall and the cops are like what are we supposed like how do you respond to that cops like are grabbing the kid but they can still feel the kid kind of being pulled away eventually 
The kid does stop getting thrown, and they put the kid down on the couch, and then stuff starts flying around. Since it has, since whatever's here no longer has a kid to throw, I'll show you. I'll throw other stuff around. Begins throwing books and lamps and pumpkins, whatever is available, at the kids, and hitting them in the head as the cops are standing there powerless. And then eventually two of the kids die on the scene. You're like, Jason, that's awful. You've been cracking jokes this whole time. This episode's full of dead children. Two of the kids die at the scene. The third one, the cops are like, go, 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 go. Pushing pumpkins out of the way. Get away. Watch out. Cabbages. Pushing those away. They throw him in an ambulance. But he dies on the way to the hospital. And the mom's uh, besides herself. No, my children. And she actually blamed her husband for this. Because if her husband had never left him in the first place, they wouldn't have been in this house and all this stuff. So anyways, now we jump ahead about 15 more years to the year 1957. This was also reported in the newspaper. These three girls, these three hot chicks are living at this house. It's like college college girls, right? And they start to hear a disturbing noise. Now, I don't know if they knew about, you know, all the all the, all the people getting murdered and the kids flying around the room, but it's probably really cheap. They're in their house partying sometime in hawaii listen to these songs 1957 no it would have been like beach boys and stuff but anyways they hear in between their parties and their nights of like pillow fights and love making they occasionally will hear the sound of an asian <laughs> of an asian man inside their walls now i have to say this if I, I don't think, I, I've heard ghosts, I've heard a couple ghosts or demons, whatever. I don't think I ever could have picked out their ethnicity. I don't think I've ever been like, hmm, that guy's from South Sudan. I don't think that, I find it weird that if you heard a ghost, unless it was speaking Japanese, I don't know if I could peg its ethnicity, right? Like, I mean, unless it was being overly stereotypical, like it was an offensively bad ghost. I don't think I would be able to be like, hmm, that guy seems like he's from the Shenkao region of Mongolia. So, but apparently these women, this guy was either Mickey Rooney level, Mickey Rooney level stereotype Asian, or these girls just heard Japanese. We don't know. But anyways, they heard an Asian man in their walls, which at that point I would move. Like, I can do with, like, a floating teacup, or I can do with my lights flickering on and off. If I heard a man in my walls, I'm out. If I heard a woman in my walls, you know, I'll be sticking around for a while. But man in my walls, no. Anyways, they eventually call the cops. And, and they didn't call the cops when there's an Asian man in their wall, by the way. They do not call the cops and say, we think there's a dude in here. They call the cops when stuff starts flying around. And they're like, ah. And the cops get there, and they see stuff flying around. And some guy's like... The legends are true. The old the old veteran cops always told me about this beat. My father was at this house. Well, I guess it's only been 15 years. I don't think it would be long enough for his dad to have done the case. Anyways, he's like, get in the cars, girl. We know how to deal with this. Get you out of the house. So the girls get in their car. Again, it was all reported in the news. The girls get in their car. The cops get in their car, and they're driving down the road. And he looks over, and he sees the girl driving the other car start going, uh and she's grasping at her neck like someone's strangling her. Cop car skids to a stop, or maybe just slows down, I don't know. He jumps out, he runs over, he can't roll down the window, because he's outside of the car, obviously. He smashes the glass with his baton, 
And he reaches in to help the girl, and he feels a coarse, strong hand wrap around his forearm. What the heck? He's fighting this force as she's continuing to get strangled. They can't open the doors. The girls are panicking, and then finally they do open the doors, and all the girls get out, and he's like, get in my car, lady. He's ready. Just start shooting the invisible force in the car. They all jump in the police car. It doesn't start. No. This is all reported in the news, by the way. No, my car won't start. They all jump out of his car, and we got to get back in the car with the ghost. Now, at this point, they could just walk down the street, right? Like, at this point, I would just be like, I'm good. There's a Wendy's over there. I'm just going to sit over there. I'm going to get a Frosty. I'm not going to get back in the car with the, with the, the strangle ghost. But they do. They all get in the car with the strangled ghost, and he he's like, I'll drive this time. And he's driving, and the girl who was previously the driver sitting in the front passenger seat, and he's driving down the road, the car door flies open, and she gets thrown out of the car, dies on the scene. No! That's the end of the legend of the Kamakuki house. Because if you go to this neighborhood in Hawaii, because it's a real neighborhood, the house itself doesn't exist. Now there's like a duplex built there. But if you go there, people will say, oh, don't say that duplex. That is where these stories took place. And you can find copies of these articles online as well, detailing those latest two events. The problem is none of it's real. Now, (laughs) Now, I didn't waste your time because I have an interesting theory about this. But there is no, the only thing we know for a fact is that there is a piece of land in a neighborhood in Honolulu where people believe a haunted house used to exist. The idea of the Kamakui family, or whatever you pronounce it, they don't seem to exist. There's no record of them existing. There was a house that was there, supposedly that was destroyed. Old-timers will say there used to be a house there. Whether or not that was the actual name of the house, nobody knows. There's no record of a man murdering his family. Now, of course, men have murdered their families, but at this location... There's no proof of any of that happening. The lesbians moving in together and then dating, no proof of that whatsoever. But Jason, you kept talking about the news articles. There are news articles. They are copies of news articles. But there's no name of the newspaper they came from. There's no date when the newspaper was published. There's no byline for the author. It's just a photograph of a newspaper article with all of the information you can use to locate it taken out to the point that it is written like a real article. They are very, very convincing. But when you get to officer and the name of the cop's name, it's redacted. When you get to the address of the house, it's redacted. When you get to the names of the girls, it's redacted. These articles are extremely convincing. Take it from a guy with an associate's degree in journalism. This is what news articles look like. But they're fake. There's an article on um, the overlyopinionated.com called I lived in the most haunted house in Hawaii, and it talks about they moved into this house when it was a duplex, and they said, every neighbor said, oh, be careful, that house is haunted. Like, the house doesn't exist anymore, but where that duplex is at, everyone in the neighborhood had a story about the Kamakuki house. When this person, I forgot to write the name down, I apologize, but when the person, you can check out the article, it's real interesting, when the person was talking to other people outside of the neighborhood, they lived in this house, the story, oh, don't live there. So it had a legend of being haunted, even though there's absolutely no real proof that it's being haunted. And they said, I feel it was haunted. The person who wrote the article says, I feel like it was haunted, but I didn't feel like it was a sinister haunting. I did get woken up a couple times, the temperature was low, and it was kind of creepy. 
but they said they'd never felt menacing haunting level stuff. So, Jason, why did you tell us a story about a haunting that you not only don't believe is true, but is almost demonstrably false? This is the interesting thing about this story. Why was this story created? Somebody made this story up. Somebody went through a lot of effort to make this story up. Writing news articles that would fool a journalism expert, myself, my associate's degree in journalism. They look like real articles. They're screenshotted like real articles. They're written exactly like a journalist would write these articles. This isn't creepypasta. This is a very well-done mock-up. Which leads us to one of two things. It's a publicity stunt for a project, which could be the case. We saw that with the Lone Pine Devils. I covered them. It's a very, very well-known cryptid. Turns out the entire thing's made up. It was a marketing gimmick for a short film. But people today still talk about the Lone Pine Devils. I saw something about it on Reddit the other day. Like, it's a real thing. But, let's put on our conspiracy caps for a second. What if... And I have a little bit... I'm kind of investigating this right now. I have, a li- I have a little bit of a lead on a story. But I believe it is possible that there is a group or groups of people that are purchasing haunted locations. To what end, I don't know. Could be a simple marketing gimmick for them. Could be something more sinister. But there is a group or groups of people that are currently purchasing haunted locations. But the thing about a haunted location is there's only so many of them. What if you can begin to create them, manufacture them? If you can get enough people to believe in something, does that thing become real? Or, if not real, more real than it used to be. Think about it this way. When you're walking through a neighborhood, you look at a house. Take a normal house. You look at it and you go, that's a normal house. But then you start telling people, that house is creepy. Whenever I walk by that house, I get a weird vibe. And you start telling everyone that. You go to a party. Hey, my name's Jason. Have I talked to you about that house? Really, really creepy house. You can build the myth. And then you get maybe 10% of the people go, you're right. I remember driving by that house once and it was kind of creepy. That's how these haunted house stories start. Sometimes you have a legitimately haunted house, but sometimes there's just a house that's a little too much weed, or the shingles seem to be falling more so than the other houses, or the person there is particularly old. The haunted house legends start. But those stories don't have mock news articles. Those are local legends. They stay local legends. The people in the neighborhood go, oh, this house is creepy, but it doesn't bleed into the internet at large. But this one did. This one seems to be an active push towards making this house being haunted. So why is somebody taking a normal plot of land, taking an urban legend about that, and creating plausible evidence and pushing it onto the internet? Is there a war? Are groups trying to buy up haunted houses, haunted locations? When we look at all of these stories we've done about these little community like uh, Stoll Cemetery, where they've completely shut it down and the locals don't let anyone in, there was the other... A uh, dark forest uh, place, I think it was in Connecticut. It was the same thing. The people are like, this is a private land, even though it has all these legends about ghosts, it's private land, the police. Is there a real estate war for haunted locations in America, if not the world? And if that is true, and we'll be investigating that in a further episode, but if that is true, if you can't buy up a haunted location... You can create a haunted location, and you can get enough people to believe that a location is haunted, that it feeds it with a little bit of sinister energy, a little bit more, a little a little bit more. You keep pushing that in there. 
until a place that was otherwise just a normal place, when someone stays there, goes, it was kind of haunted. As this story grows and more people put their psychic energy into believing this story to be true, will it go from just a mild haunting waking up with a cold spot to being woken up with the sound of an Asian man in the walls right behind your bed? I don't know the answer to whether or not people can create a haunting using their thoughts. I believe so, but that's a big question. The more important question right now is, who is behind this story? Because someone is trying really, really hard to get people to believe that this plot of land is haunted. And if they're not doing it for commercial gain, is it the tip of an incredibly dark conspiracy? of people, of humans, trying to control the world of the paranormal. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. (laughs) 